authorized two operations in Iraq, targeted airstrikes to protect our American personnel, and a humanitarian effort to help save thousands of Iraqi civilians who are trapped on a mountain without food and water and facing almost certain death. Let me explain the actions we're taking and why. In August of 2014, 20,000 people were trapped on a small desert mountain in northern Iraq. Some were dying of hunger far from the markets and kitchens and restaurants of their homes. Others fell victim to dehydration or simply succumbed to the sweltering heat. But that was still preferable to what was happening in the villages below where their friends and families were being shot, kidnapped, or buried alive by ISIS. It would take three years for Iraqi and Kurdish forces to back ISIS out of the region, but when the Yazidi people began returning home, writer Rebecca Holland was not far behind. She wanted to see the 4,000-year-old temples at the heart of their culture, and to do it, she'd have to walk in the footsteps of war. Welcome back to the Get Lost Podcast, everybody. I am your host, travel writer Joe Sills. I'm a writer for the Travel Channel, Lonely Planet, and a couple of other places around the world. And today I'm joined by a guest from far, far, far away. Her name is Rebecca Holland. She is a writer for the New York Times, The Guardian, a far architectural digest in food and wine. She is a Chicago native that wants lived beneath her desk so that she could rent an Airbnb. <laughs> and now she lives in Dubai. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. <laughs> what a great intro. Thank you so much. I mean, hey, you made it easy. Um, I guess the first thing people are going to want to know is why were you sleeping under your desk? Yeah, great question. Um, because uh, travel writing is an extremely... Like, it seems glamorous, but it's one of the lowest paid jobs you can do, but also really fun. And so to make it work, I rented out my Chicago apartment on Airbnb, which was actually great. And sometimes I would mess up the dates from when I would be traveling and, and be home, and I would have to sleep under my co-working space desk because people were still in my apartment. So, yeah. How long did you do that for? Um, I rented my apartment for about four years, three years. Um somewhere between three and four years, and the sleeping under the desk part, I only had the co-working space for a year, so only a few times during that year, but I would stay at friends' houses or um, hostels sometimes, like, uh, lots of other, my parents live in Wisconsin, I grew up in Wisconsin, so, you know, sometimes I would go home um, all over just to make it work, but usually I would try to stay in my apartment, but I didn't always plan very well, so. I keep wanting to do that. Uh, my landlord is an evil bastard and won't let me sublet. Yeah, it's my my landlords didn't know and my doormen were in on it and they were like cool with it and I would give them like Christmas presents or, you know, bring them things and stuff. But uh yeah, my landlords weren't really okay with it either. So did that eventually catch up with you or you're just like, Man, I'm kinda tired of having weird people in my place? Yeah, it eventually they were getting they were questioning it more and more and then I was gonna going to move to um Ann Arbor, Michigan. My boyfriend was in grad school there and so I probably would have re-signed my lease and kept the apartment um, and like lived in Ann Arbor, but still had the Chicago apartment. But my landlord started to put up all these signs around the building about Airbnb and stuff. So I just 
ended up moving to Ann Arbor and getting rid of the apartment, which was kind of sad because, I don't know, one, it was really useful, and two, like, I don't know, I, I lived there for a long time. I liked it. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. Um, so yeah. when you talk about travel writing, like being one of the, the lowest paid jobs, that's important because we want people to feel sorry for us um, here yeah. at the Get Lost podcast. But Yeah, it's hard for people to feel sorry for us, so though, like, yeah, there's so many good parts of the job, too, but. Well, I think that's that's a misconception too. Is that people think, oh, um, you guys are traveling the world and you're you're getting rich off of it. And the reality of a lot of travel writing is is a little bit different than it used to be. Like, I talk to older writers that are, you know, they say, oh, we used to make thousands per story. And I'm just yeah, like, it's crazy. What? Like, you're like okay, maybe maybe like three fifty is like a good rate for a story. If someone's like, oh, three hundred fifty dollars for a story. Like, that's amazing. But yeah. Kind of, yeah, uh, but it depends on how long you, you know, it takes to write it, how long you have to to mm-hmm. source things. I mean, it it can, you have to be careful with it. But at at the end of the yeah. day, I guess we're both pretty damn lucky. Yeah, no, definitely, right. So it's like the high end now. I feel like is a couple hundred, like three hundred dollars or something, which seems easy. But then you put in all the work, and you're like, it's actually like a really low hourly rate. On the other hand, you get to travel the world and stay in amazing places and eat a bunch of great food and meet really cool people. So totally. Yeah. So how long have you been on the road? Um, I have been like, well, I graduated college in 2010 and I, um, did like a eight month backpacking trip with one of my best friends. And then from there, I've kind of always like lived abroad or worked abroad or, and then kind of been like back in the U S and back and forth kind of like all over the place for the last, I guess, 10 years now. Um, but during that period, there were definitely times where I was, you know, were in Chicago more or like I worked in, I had a full-time job in Italy for two and a half years. So that was a little more put, they put there, but then would travel on the weekend. So kind of been like between, between stable and nomadic for about a decade. Um, and now I, I live in Dubai. So technically like I have an apartment and I'm here, but I'm also just gone all the time. So I don't know. That's, that's mind blowing in itself. Did, was the backpacking trip like what kicked off this endless wanderlust or were you already kind of roaming before then um yeah actually i had never my family we grew up doing a ton of camping trips which is great like a lot of national parks my parents are big um campers actually met uh working at glacier national park and so we were very national park family and that was all great but i never had actually left the u.s until college i studied abroad in jordan and it kind of like it sounds so cliche like study abroad changed my life but it really did um it was the first time i'd ever left the country in the Middle East, it's like very different place, and um, it was just so great. And so I had studied abroad with my best friend in college, and after that, we came back. We had one more semester of school, and we were both working in restaurants in Madison. We went to the University of Wisconsin, and we like, okay, we're just gonna you know work and work and work and work and like save all this money and go like backpack around. So we did the kind of like I guess now it's the typical route, like the Southeast Asia backpacking route, and then back to the Middle East. Um, basically just did it until we ran out of money and had to go home and get jobs. And that was great. And then then from then on, it was kind of like, okay, I have to, you know, I know I have to go home and get a job, but I also like travel has to be part of my life now, which is kind of crazy considering I didn't, you know, ever leave until I was 21 or something. Yeah. And of of all places, the first one to leave is is you go to Jordan. So you go right into the (laughs) Middle East. Like, did that freak people out? Yeah, I think people, I mean, Jordan, and I think people knew that, but some people, I'm from a really small town in Wisconsin, and some people were like, oh, the police, like, are you joining the military? No, that's not why I'm going there. But I was studying journalism and Middle Eastern studies because I knew I wanted to go into journalism, and at the time, I was like, well, Albany is in the Middle East right now. I mean, this is like 2003, but so, um, yeah, like in high school, I was like, okay, I'm going to go to school for journalism, Albany is in the Middle East, I'll like try to study a language and and be a war correspondent, which isn't exactly what I ended up doing, but it made sense to me to learn about the Middle East and study it because it seemed like it would be in the news forever, which it has been. And um, once I took, like, the first Middle Eastern studies, like, a history class or something, it was just so fascinating, like, so much history, literally, like, the start of civilization. So, um, yeah, I just, like, really – and then after coming here for the first time, there's so much hospitality, and it's just so welcoming and beautiful, and the food is just – so so good and I like really really fell in love with it I think you bring up a good point in that it's the cradle of civilization and I think as Americans 
you know, growing up, we're probably the same age that we would have graduated college mm-hmm. at the same time if I hadn't dropped out to be an Egyptologist or whatever. That didn't work out, but. Oh, that's cool. I need to hear more about that. Actually, <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was a great idea, but it didn't work in, in reality. Um, but okay. it's so we're kind of trained to think about the Middle East like as kids our first images of it are like that's CNN, like Gulf War, you right. know, night vision and rockets and explosions and just like really, really horrible stuff, actually, if you think about it. Yeah. But there's so much that started there. I mean, human civilization really began like sort of in the place where we're going to eventually get to today. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Fertile Crescent area in, in Iraq and around Jordan. And yeah, it's crazy to think about. We're going to talk to you about Iraq and about going to a, a specific region there that a lot of Americans have heard of, but probably don't really know anything about. Before I do that, I want to talk to you a little bit about like the basics of living abroad and specifically in Dubai. I mean, you just kind of casually okay. floated out like, oh, I got an apartment in Dubai. What? <laughs> yeah. Um, Dubai is an interesting place. It's not... To be honest, it's not my favorite place in the Middle East. Like, it's very easy to live here, and it's um, it's nice. It's like, really safe. Um, it's it's great in a lot of ways. The weather is really nice, especially right now in the winter. But um, it doesn't. It's just really different than the rest of the Middle East. Um, but yeah, I moved here. We actually moved for my um, boyfriend's job. He works in consulting, and so we knew we wanted to move back to the Middle East and uh, he got a job here. And, and even though Dubai isn't probably either of our favorite places, it is a good base to travel around the rest of the Middle East. And again, it's like a very, um, like if you've never been to the Middle East before, Dubai is maybe a good place to kind of start. I would say Dubai and then maybe Jordan because it's really safe. It's uh, people speak English. I don't know. It's, it's just an easy place to start off. It's, what are the, some of the challenges that you face like on a day-to-day basis as like being a Midwestern girl living in the Middle East? Because I think a lot of people like they're already kind of like most people that's way out of their comfort zone, right? Right. Um, honestly, in Dubai, you pretty much won't face any challenges. But when we were living before living here, I lived in Iraq for a while and and then before that, Jordan. And in those places, the challenges I think are just that things are maybe not what you expect. So um, if you're coming from the U.S. and if you haven't spent time in uh, anywhere aside from maybe the U.S. or Europe or something, like certain things are just a little slower, happen a little bit differently, Um, but I think they're great. And then I guess like I get stared at a lot, like I'm really blonde and so people will just stare, but I don't think it's necessarily in a creepy way. I think it's more in a, oh, like we've never seen a very pale, very blonde person just like wandering around in um, Northern Iraq before. And so that's always like interesting to get used to, but I think not bad. Um, Yeah, I I guess I'm not really sure. I feel like I've spent so much time here. It's hard for me to think of what is unique to people when they come. Um, Definitely like people dress differently and there's like you hear the call to prayer all the time, which is actually really beautiful. Um, there's just like certain customs you have to get used to. And, uh, yeah, I I actually don't know. That's a good question. I feel like I'm not answering it very well because I'm like, what is weird about living here? I don't know. Well, you are sort of a nomad. So I've I've got like this Lawrence of Arabia type, like vision of you kind of wandering through the the desert now. Um, and actually, um, if you guys go follow Rebecca on Instagram, she does have some pictures that look very much like Lawrence of Arabia. Um, <laughs> she's at Rebecca Lee Holland, and we're going to put a link to that in the show notes. But she's a really, really good follow because in addition to wandering around the Middle East and just like glimpses of everyday life in Dubai, you also get to follow her on a lot of cool press trips. Like you were recently, I think you were in Ireland. Is that right? Yeah, I was in Ireland um, learning about the new Guinness uh, tour. Guinness opened its brewery for the first time ever in the history of Guinness before you could visit the museum and like store and stuff, but never actually see where the beer is brewed. And now you can for the first time in history. It's really cool. So, yeah, I travel a lot. So come follow along, I guess. <laughs> yeah, she's a good follower. <laughs> so going back to Dubai, or I guess we can probably talk about this more in Iraq, but do you have to like 
Are you able to just take your American wardrobe and, and wear it there? Because the first question I get from people is like, oh, I have to go to the Middle East and I have to wear special clothing. I have to, you know, suddenly like change my religion and all this. Do you deal with anything yeah. like that? So, yeah, that's what, I can't believe I forgot to talk about this as far as things that are different. So in Dubai, not really. I mean, I still wouldn't wear like a mini skirt or like short, like really short shorts or something like that. Um, or like you can if you go out to the clubs here and stuff. But for the most part, I try to dress a little bit more conservatively in Iraq or Jordan. You, I guess there's not like a law against it or anything, but you wouldn't want to. I mean, I always wear, you know, cover your shoulders, definitely cover your knees. I usually wear like a long, long skirt or pants. Um, like jeans and a t-shirt is fine, but definitely like nothing low cut, like usually like t-shirt length necklines are good. Um, yeah, I always like to have a scarf. You don't have to cover your hair. Like I have never really covered my hair. Um, if I went to Saudi Arabia or Iran, that would probably be different. I probably would there, but in the rest of the Middle East, you don't have to do that, but it's still nice to have a scarf just in case. Like a lot of times if you're going into a mosque or another more like religious site then you have to so it's nice to just have it with you um for men you can kind of wear whatever men always have it easiest like you can just it's the same as in the u.s pretty much you don't have to think about it but for women like no skirts no shorts um yeah cover your shoulders don't wear anything low cut and maybe just like bring a scarf everywhere yeah what about access <laughs> to um the internet so like today that i was unaware that you know, there's some things that are blocked um, in Dubai. So you're using a VPN to actually kind of sneak through it the, the way that like you'd have right. to use one in China to check Instagram or something. Right. So, yeah, it depends on the country. Um, in a lot of, I don't, in Jordan and Lebanon, I don't think most places a lot is blocked, but in Dubai, like all video calling and apps, so it's like WhatsApp. Um, you can use the texting, but not the audio or, or calling functions. Um, like FaceTime is blocked, uh, all of those types of things. Um, certain things will be censored, like certain YouTube videos are blocked and stuff. There aren't really, as far as I know of, no major sites, at least not ones that I use, and no major apps are completely blocked except for like FaceTime and, and Skype and any video calling. Um, in other countries, like I think in Turkey, YouTube is blocked, or I'm not sure if that's still true, but it was at one point. Um, and so, yeah, stuff like that can be challenging at first or realizing that, like, things are censored. So when um, there was a movie on TV in, in Dubai the other day, and I can't remember um, what movie it was now, but there was a huge chunk of it that I was like, wait, what happened to this part of the movie? Like, I've seen it before. And so sometimes things will just be, yeah, censored a little bit. Um, do you know um, why they do yeah. that? Uh, so with the censorship, it's usually, I think, if there's, um, like, sex scenes or like drugs like things that are kind of against i mean technically uh the ua is still an islamic country and like a lot of other places where um they follow more islamic law it's the things that are like, against islam are, are censored a lot but also sometimes i mean sometimes they're not like they're like dubai is pretty relaxed in a lot of ways um and as far as the facetiming and stuff i i think it's because well, this is like, like I'm, I don't actually know for sure, but there is a government owned app that allows you to FaceTime. And so I think it's because they want people to use their app. Um, oh, okay. And also yeah. I've heard, I've heard that they, right. So they block the other ones because they want you to download that one. And I've heard that that one is pretty, actually the New York times just had a big article about how all of those calls were like tracked, which is kind of creepy. Um, and shocking. So, yeah. Yeah. So I used to use a VPN. I think technically you're not supposed to, but like every expat here does it. Um, I, and it's not really that enforced. I think there are other places, other countries where maybe wouldn't do it, but here it's fine. I say that and now this podcast layer and I'll get like deported or something, but hopefully not. Uh, that would really suck. I would owe you big time. Yeah. If, like if you get deported <laughs> for a stupid podcast, like. No, yeah, that's okay. I'll just go somewhere else. It's fine. Yeah. Um, like, oh man, one more failed adventure. Like, good story i'll write about it yeah please do all right so speaking of story um we're gonna get to the the nitty-gritty of this podcast which I'm, I'm super excited about and it's the reason we have you here i want you to use your storytelling skills i want our readers to kind of picture being in dubai if you can the towers and and beautiful scenery mosaic of people and you get on a plane 
and you head a couple hundred miles north and you go to Iraq. What the hell is that scene like? Okay, so I didn't actually write all of that, which I should have because like, I'm a writer and I'm way better at writing the scene. But um, basically when you get to Iraq, I think it's totally different than what most people expect or what they see on the news, especially if you go to um, Erbil, which is where I previously lived. Erbil is the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan, so it's the Kurdish region. Um, it's extremely safe. There have been no attacks there in like over a decade. Um, it's really beautiful in a way. There's old, ancient uh, citadel, like city area with a big bazaar. Um, and then there are just all these like small houses and stuff. But if you drive out of Erbil, Erbil is just like a really big city. So there's a lot going on. It's like pretty hectic. There are malls and stuff. But um, if you drive out of Erbil and go more north towards like the Gahuk area, which is just like another region of, of the Curtis area. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go to this temple valley called Lalish, which is this like gorgeous, gorgeous region. Um, it's like as you're driving, there are all these like lush valleys and rolling hills, and everything's extremely green. And there are like hundreds of sheep, which I don't think people expect. Like it looks like Ireland. Um, and this is never really what you see in Iraq. I think you see a lot of desert or a lot of like old crumbling buildings or you see like East Lake Mosul which is a beautiful city that's been completely destroyed so you see war and bombing and destruction but um, if you're driving in this area it's really safe there are you know mountains in the distance like huge towering red mountains and then these rolling like lush green hills and sheep and then as you drive you can stop in this town called Acre which is this tiny mountain town um, and you can stop there. There are a few spots where you can like sit at these like counter spaces with outdoor tables and have lunch, and they'll bring you um, like typical lunches there, so, like kebab and lots of pickled vegetables, and, like lentil soup, and just so much food that um, you'll see the guy like grilling the kebabs on the side. He'll just keep putting them on the table, like usually chicken and lamb, and basically like one thing I love about the Middle East is, is the food and the hospitality and people just want you to eat all the time and like constantly have you be trying their food which is great yeah um, it sounds amazing actually <laughs> yeah so they like bring it to you like eat more kebab and bread and the bread is really good there's this um, Kurdish uh, or Iraqi bread called Samoon which is this really soft kind of um, bread that I guess it's just like a really soft bread I don't really know how to explain it it's not like pita it's more of a um I don't really actually know how to explain it at all, but it's just like this really soft, delicious bread that you can dip in, in like the hummus and stuff or like stuff with kebab. Um, What's the flavor of it? Like, like, is it a sweet bread or? No, it's just, it doesn't actually even have that much flavor. It's more the texture. It's just like really soft and it's kind of like a white bread, I guess, but it's between like a, like a, what is it like? I'm trying to think of anything else like it. It's just kind of like a roll, like a bread roll, but it's a really soft bread roll in the in a shape that's kind of like an eye like an oval shape um interesting and yeah it's it's really great i i don't know how to explain it but and then if you continue after lunch driving into the mountains you'll get to this area called lalish um which is this huge temple complex for it's the holiest area for the yazidi people so um the Yazidis are this minority ethnic group in mostly Iraq, but Iraq and Syria and Turkey, but um, and Iran, but mostly Iraq. And they have been persecuted for a long time, but especially in 2014, there was huge genocide of the Yazidis by ISIS. They killed about 5,000 people, um, and it led to almost all of the Yazidi population being exiled from their land. And uh, a lot of the women and girls were forced into like sex slavery it was really horrible and and a lot of people fled into the Sinjar mountains which is near Lalish but Lalish is the like holiest area for them and so they have this huge temple complex there um I cannot remember exactly when it dates back to but it's extremely extremely old and it's all these like beautiful cone-shaped temples they're kind of like a sandstone color and there's like dotted all over this valley um like tons of temples and then you can walk inside of them so when you first get to the temple complex you drive up this hill um you have to stop at a checkpoint kind of throughout the drive from Erbil to Lalish there are a few checkpoints which is always funny to go through as a, a very blonde American I think yeah. you're, you're a very creepy. you're very obviously a spy 
Yeah, they're always like, uh, first of all, like, you're driving, and, like, what are you doing here? And they usually are, it's totally fine. Um, they don't really, at least I haven't been questioned that much. Um, and then, yeah, you get to La List. You have to take off your shoes before you enter this whole area. And then there's all these walkways and a lot of grass and hills and, like, stone steps. And it's pretty big. I don't know about how many acres it is, but it's, like, a big area. And you can wander around and... So when I went was uh, in the spring, in March, a couple of years ago, and um, Yazidi New Year is, like, around the first day of spring, um, similar to, like, Persian New Year. And so there are a bunch of people preparing to celebrate the New Year there. They have this huge, huge festival with, like, fire and light candles and things and, like, a giant procession. Um, And it's a really big deal because for the last few years they hadn't been able to come there because of the genocide and because people were kind of like forced out into the mountains and so they hadn't really been able to celebrate New Year's so this was the first year that it was safe to come back and people were really excited and so we were there a few days before the New Year's and so there were just some groups of people we started talking to um I was there with my boyfriend we started talking to a group of uh young girls like probably around 15 16 years old and their teacher and they were celebrating the New Year they had all this chocolate cake and like soda and stuff they like sit down and and you know talk to us and they told us all about like, their life and how excited they were to go home and we talked a lot about their like celebrity crushes which was like really funny like they all were obsessed with Justin Bieber which I also think like relatable think a, yeah when, I think when you read about like the Yazidis and the news it's, it's like okay you know this horrible like, horrendous thing was happening which is true but it just kind of I don't know I think like from the U.S. perspective or just like whenever you're really far away kind of forget like oh like, these are just people like they're young girls who obviously have like life and interests and stuff and you know they're all like talking about makeup and Justin Bieber and uh, I'm still like Instagram friends with them now and like one is at university in Berlin and um, we keep in touch and it's really fun but anyway we sat and and talked with them for a while and like had tea and soda and chocolate cake and and then drove home but it was just like a really it's a really special place like it feels very tranquil and green and like the temples are just so beautiful and it was like a really special experience to talk about like the new year with them at this kind of pivotal moment. And um, yeah, it was really like wonderful and probably one of these travel experiences that I will like never forget. Do you know if the temples, are they Islamic temples? Or are they like a, a Yazidi religion? They're, they're Yazidi temples. So Yazidi is, it's a like ethnic group, but also a religion. So um, I am definitely not an expert on the religion. I don't know um, it, I know it's like a monotheistic religion. They have basically like one god, obviously monotheistic, but then there are like a lot of angels involved. I'm not sure on all the specifics of the religion, but it's its own separate religion. Like it's not Islam. It's something separate. And so that's partly why they've been so persecuted is because they have their own religion. So are the temples like, are, are they covered in like intricate carvings and ancient or paintings and things like that? Like what, what do they look like? They are like these stone, kind of like a, a light yellowish stone um, complex. So like up on top of the hill, there will be like tombs. Basically, they're, they're just a, like a series of tombs that have these cone-shaped roofs. So um, they're not that ornate, to be honest. They're not like temples in Southeast Asia or like India or something. They're um, just kind of the sandstone color uh cone triangle thing but I guess what makes them so beautiful is that they're like nestled into the valley and like into the trees so they look really natural and they just kind of they're like dotted all over and then they have the steps leading up to them and then um yeah they're really not that ornate at all it's just they just look very like natural and also kind of random like you're driving along and there's nothing around you and then all of a sudden there's this temple complex so when you say you're driving that's like just simple things to me, like blow my mind when we're talking about Iraq and it, you're driving. Like, what are you driving? What do people drive there? <laughs> so, uh, like everyone in in Erbil drives Toyota Hiluses. I think that's what they're called. Um, it's like the most common car. I've never seen so many of one type of car in one place. But that's not what we're driving. Now uh, we had just you can rent cars. You know, same as same as in the U.S. There, I can't remember if it's Hertz or Enterprise, but there are definitely like a couple big car rental places that have offices there. Um, so they just give so you like just, the standard like shitty rental car. Yeah, we have yeah exactly like a 
small, normal four-door car. I can't remember what type it was. But yeah, just a normal car. Um, drive along. The roads are, like, good and bad. It depends where you are. So um, some of the mountain roads are, are really good. Some of them are much, you know, more, like, kind of beat up or a lot of dirt roads or gravel roads. Um, in the in the cities, the traffic can be, like, a little crazy. Like, people, you know, just driving kind of insanely. Um but yeah, it's just kind of like driving. I feel like I've rented cars in dozens of countries and always I'm like, it's fine, just drive. But I don't know if that's the best advice. But I really think that if you can get out of the city in the first place, then highways and mountains is totally fine. So yeah, and a Hilux, for those of you in America, Hilux is like a Toyota Tacoma, basically. Um, oh, is that okay? I don't know anything about cars. I just know that I saw those like the they say Toyota Hilux on the front. Yeah, it's it's more or less a, a Tacoma. It's like a mid-sized pickup truck um, here. Anywhere else in the world, it's a gigantic vehicle. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, it's funny how, like, American trucks, just they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, like, around the world, it's like, no, we figured out you only need this size truck. Turns out works good for most things. Like, it's, <laughs> it's fine. That's so true. Yeah, like, you don't, you don't need it to be that. It's, I promise you. I promise you, F-350 people, you don't need that shit. Um, <laughs> so this is such a fascinating journey. And for you guys at home, like if you look on Rebecca's Instagram, at Rebecca Lee Holland, um, it's it's a sort of a region that looks a lot like, to me, in Ireland, but also New Zealand. Like, very Lord of the Rings. Yes. Like, just, I, I couldn't believe you were in a rock when I saw this. And I also couldn't believe, like, this is... This is like what everybody's fighting over. And this is what everybody's pissed off at each other in this beautiful, beautiful land. And it seems so senseless. But you're so you're talking like recent events. So 2014, there's a big genocide. And 2019, I yeah, 2019, you're there. Yeah, I think I was there 2017. So, yeah, a couple of years ago. But, um, yeah, yeah, I'm hoping to go back. I was planning to spend more time there now than I'm back in the Middle East, but the last few weeks, things have been a little crazy with the killing of um, Suleimani. But, um, yeah, it was very recent events, and it's kind of crazy. One thing that I have been thinking about a lot in Iraq with um, just everything that's been happening in the news is that this is a place that's been at war for a long time, and a lot of it really has nothing to do, like what's currently happening with Iran and the U.S. It's basically, it's still really bad for um, people in Iraq and especially in the Kurdish region that don't really have a lot to do with it and that are going to be dragged into it. And it's just it's really upsetting. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I mean, these are people like the news is you're right. The American tendency is like, oh, these people are far away and, you know, doesn't matter to me. But these are people walking around in a mountain towns with Instagram. I mean, it's not these aren't barbarians like we're past that. You know, they're real. Yeah, people. I think that. Yeah, and I think that when you come to the Middle East, you're more like, people are like, oh, like, you know, you have the same stores, you have, like, a lot of the same chain restaurants, like, it's, it's, it's not the same as New York, obviously, but there are similarities, like, everywhere you go, obviously, there are similarities, but... Like, there's a KFC, that, probably, on every corner. Yeah, exactly, and people, right, and people think of it as, like, so different, it's, like, the quality of life and stuff is, is... Similar. I mean, you have a mall, you have restaurants, you have people still go out and do things and like live their lives. Yeah, there's like in Erbil, um, in Iraq where we live, there's a German beer hall down the street and a coffee shop where like a ton of freelance journalists would sit and work. And and I'm not gonna say it was like being in Chicago because it definitely wasn't, but I think it was a lot more like normal feeling than people at home thought it was. You know. Yeah, and Erbil's a place that you know we were here about in the news a lot as recently as like the Obama administration it was. Yeah. Yeah. It was big time in the news then when, so you're like going in and you're with your boyfriend, you're driving like shitty rental car and you're in these mountains, you talk to people, but you're in the, you're walking in the footsteps of genocide. Like what is the mood of the locals? You said they're happy to be home, but can you tell like any, do yeah, they seem so hesitant in, to reach out to to Americans or outsiders? So in in this in Lalish, in that particular place, um, it is like a temple and a place of you know like worship and celebration and stuff. So the people who were there ahead of the New Year, I think they were happy. Um, 
and just kind of like relieved that things are getting better and, and very happy to talk to us and excited to talk to us. And um, yeah, but the overall mood in Iraq, especially, I mean, I don't know that much about Iraq as a whole in the Kurdish region was a little different. Like there are a lot of people in Erbil who um, like people I know, like photographer friends and stuff who are like, well, Iraq has been at war my whole life. You know, they're around my age, like 30, 31. And, um, you know, first there was, Saddam Hussein, and, you know, he killed a bunch of Kurdish people. Then there was the U.S. war in 2003. Then there was, you know, ISIS. And so a lot of them seem very, uh, yeah, like, you know, Iraq's been at war forever for their whole lives. And the, I was asking some of them, like, what are you going to do after, you know, now that ISIS is supposedly defeated? Like, are you going to, like, are you worried you want to have a job to some of, like, translators and things? And they were like, no, there'll be another war. Like, Iraq is always at war, which is really depressing and sad. And um, it was also, it's very interesting to be in a place where, like, very surreal, where, like, every single person that you talk to has been touched by war. Like, you can go to other countries and even places that have had a lot of war and destruction. That's not always the case. But, like, every single person that I spoke to in Iraq, whether, like, a taxi driver or a barista or friends or anything, had a family member who... Um, was, like, killed or injured by Saddam Hussein or by ISIS. And, like, that's just a crazy fact. And, um, right. yeah, I don't know. It's just, like, very surreal because you're going through your life and, like, everything is normal and fine and herbal. Like, you're going to the coffee shop. You're going to the gym and beer hall. Like, you have friends. You go out to dinner. You, like, live your life. But then you're, like, well, it's a very different experience for the expats and the people who live there, I think. And – or not, I think. I mean, it definitely is. And then it's also crazy that, you know, Mosul is, like, 30 miles away. And so – um, and there's like so much, there was at the time so much terrible stuff happening there. So it was very weird to be like living 30 miles from something and feel so separated from it. And so it was like incredibly surreal, but also I think like eye opening and, um, yeah. Really so you're like within, I don't know about driving times over there, but it would seem like a pretty short drive, 30 miles from Mosul. Yeah. Yeah, and so, like, a lot of the um, aid workers and journalists would be, like, based in Erbil and then go there often. Do you can you, do you feel comfortable, like, sharing, in general, like, a, one, or, one or two of the stories that you heard just from people on the street that were touched by this conflict? Um, yeah, there were a lot of people who, especially from, like, Salumania, which is a different town in the north, uh, who's, um, like, one of my photographer friends, his... Um, or his dad had been you know, killed by Saddam Hussein, basically, or by Saddam Hussein's army. And so he, you know, and his mom had to move to the book, and then he had to, he was basically like, taking care of her. But then now with ISIS, like, another, his cousin was killed. I mean, they're just like, I don't know. Yeah, it's just kind of like the, the stories kind of are all blend together and are very similar. Like, okay, and then so, someone was was killed by one of these two people or one of these two forces, and it's just really like I don't I don't know I don't really know how to explain it just like depressing but also kind of like numbing like some people seem really numb to it and you're like wow this is not a it's not like normal to be like numb to so much trauma yeah I mean how do you react because if someone at home was like yeah my uncle died he was killed in a war like you would be really really you'd be like it's an awkward position but you'd be really sympathetic but with so much of that do you just kind of like nod and go along or or what yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I don't really know, to be honest. Like, I, you're right. It's kind of an awkward position, and I don't really, didn't really know how to react to it, and still kind of don't. Like when I still friends a lot of people on Instagram or like see things happening, like with, you know, what happened recently with Suleimani being killed in Iraq, and some of my friends are posting, um, you know, oh, okay, I like can't do another war. I don't want to go through another war. And yeah, I don't really know how to react to it because it's something that no matter how empathetic you are, like as Americans, like we are just really, really privileged and lucky and we'll never, ever have to go through that on that scale. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I'd always just be like, oh my gosh, wow, I'm so sorry here. But I don't think that I, yeah, I don't know. I probably didn't react to this super well. I do feel like a responsibility as, as an American, because it's like, I talked about this with another guest a few episodes ago, but it's like, dude, we, she's actually Australian, um, but we, we're just like, we don't control where we're born. You know, you're born in Wisconsin, and I'm born in Tennessee. And she's born in Australia. And, like, we're born into these very privileged cultures where, 
you know, people around us at home complain about poverty and there are real issues there. Are, I mean, mm-hmm. oh, Mem- yeah, definitely. there are Memphis is a very low income city. So it has a lot of problems, but nothing compared to like what a lot of the world deals with. And I feel a responsibility. Like if we're privileged with this, we should go out and explore and at least try to tell some of the stories and help the people that we can help, you know? Yeah, and it's also just, like, really, really unfair. Like, our passports, is, you know, we can go pretty much anywhere. There are, like, two or three places in the world where it's hard for us to get visas or go. And for people in Iraq or people in, you know, India or people all over, basically, anywhere that's not Europe, the U.S. or Australia, it's just so much harder. Um, and so people might want to leave. Like, if something horrible was happening in, in Wisconsin, like, I could just leave. But if something horrible was happening somewhere else, like, people can't. You know, you can't just leave, obviously, as we've seen with, like, the numbers of, of refugees from Syria and stuff and people not um, taking them in. It's, it's, yeah, or even just, like, some of my friends in Iraq who um, are, like, better off there but just can't leave because they can't get visas. It's, like, really unfair. Yeah, so they can't go, like, if you they got on a plane and tried to go to a certain country, they'd be sent right back. Right. As soon That's as good. they landed. Yeah, crazy. Tell me a little bit about the Kurdish people, because I think we talk about Iraqis and we talk about Syrians, but the Kurds are sort of wedged in the middle of those two countries. Like, that's their land, but who are they and how are they different from everyone else in the region? Yeah, so um, the Kurds are an ethnic group. They're native to um, Kurdistan, which goes across Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and, and Syria. Um, kind of an area of land that encompasses all of those places. Uh, and they speak Kurdish, um, which is a different language than like Arabic or Persian. Um, most of them are like Sunni Islam, but there are also Yazidis uh, and Shia stuff and some Christians. But basically, they, at least in Iraq, have tried to um, gain independence and I think it was, I'm trying to think of the year now, it was right when I left, I think 2017, I might be wrong with that. They held a referendum and voted for independence, but then the Iraqi government kind of shut it down. So, and I think there are like similar struggles in the other countries where, where they exist. So they're basically, um, yeah, just a, an ethnic group that is separate from um, like Arab Iraqis or like per- Persians in Iran or Turkish people. And in some areas, they want independence. And um, in other areas, I'm not sure if they necessarily want independence, but they have gone through, like, different struggles with the, like, Turkish government, um, like, recognizing them and and stuff. So So it's analogous maybe to, like, Catalan and Spain. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, in, in some ways. So another thing I wanted to ask you about is... When we talk about Iraq as a traveler, um, I ran into this in Vietnam. My first trip outside of America ever was Vietnam. And from day one, you know, you land in Saigon, and our tendency was to view the country through a war-torn lens. Mm -hmm. And, And everywhere we went, you know, we're looking for signs of the Vietnam War. We're looking for museums and old airplanes, and there are people on mopeds that have, like, GI helmets on and stuff like that. But a couple of days into the, the country, you realize like, dude, this is this war that we're so obsessed with in America and that was so horrible and killed millions of people. It's just a very small part of this country's history. Is it the same mm-hmm. in Iraq? Like you go around and you see temples and historic sites and palaces and you start to change your perspective of like, you know, I've only known about Iraq since the 90s. And maybe a little of my knowledge goes back to the 80s, but here is this land of literally like of Babylon that we're walking around. Right. In. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting. Cause I think right now, if you go to Iraq, it's definitely the focus is more on war and rebuilding. It's a, like Vietnam has had, you know, some decades since then, um, where Iraq hasn't. But it's true that like even with everything that I've talked about, how like, oh, they've all been at war for, you know, all of these people's lives and stuff, it's still like a small blimp in time compared to the entire history, which is like the Babylon Empire, like the Assyrians, the Ottomans, and they went through all of these periods, like wealth, and um, there are so many, you know, things that were started there, and so many, like, uh, archaeological sites, and also, 
like you see in museums across the world, you know, things from around Iraq as far as like pottery and jewelry and other things. And so there's such a long history of like art and which is still going on. There's also still like so much cool stuff happening. There's a lot of um, like street art in Baghdad and stuff. And so, and like beautiful palaces and things. So there's a lot, this is like a long arc of history that I think that it's really easy to focus on the current wars and current like instability and stuff. But if you actually look back over time, like they have a way longer history, like much longer time prosperity than the U.S. has since we're such a young country. So it's interesting to think about that way. What is your advice to an American traveler that wants to go to Iraq and see some of these sites? Yeah, so Iraq, so I would say that you could, right now it's kind of a weird time because of um, everything that's happened a couple of weeks ago. I would say definitely go, but definitely probably stick to the current decision right now. As much as I want to be like, yeah, go travel to Iraq, it's great. I don't think that's necessarily true. And it, there are parts that are definitely dangerous. Um, I wouldn't go to Baghdad right now and or kind of maybe anywhere in mainland Iraq. It's also just you have to get a visa and that's harder. Um, in the Kurdish region, uh, I think it is still probably pretty safe. Although for Americans right now, I wouldn't go, which is sad because like I also really want to go. And I'm hoping that within a couple weeks or a couple months that can change. Um, but just because of uh, what's happening between Iran and the U.S. right now, and that's happening mostly in Iraq, I probably don't think like the next few months are a great time to go. But um, in the future, I think that, you know, the Kurdish region is really safe in Erbil is a cool city. There's a um, great bazaar. There's like really good food. Uh, there's this fort that they say is the oldest continuously inhabited place in the world. Um, there is, you can go up to through Dehuk, which is the mountain region that I was talking about earlier and into Lalish and um, like Akre. You can go hiking more in the north. There's this huge lake, um, Lake Dukan. It's a um, it's a man-made lake, but it's it's really pretty and also nice because it gets so hot there in the summer. So you can go up into the mountains. There's hiking. You can go swim in this lake. Um, and then there's this town in the north, like near the border of Iran, um, uh, Suleimania, which is uh, has lots of interesting like markets and also history as well. It's where um, there's a museum there about the uh, Onfall, which is the Saddam Hussein massacre against the Kurds, but it's kind of like the um, tool sling prison in Cambodia. I don't know if anyone's been there, um, but it's a it's, it's a really depressing museum, but I think important to see. And there are a few other there's an art museum there. There's some like cool photo exhibits, um, and yeah. So I think that that's maybe one of the more there's a jazz club that's like a pretty vibrant city. So there and Erbil have a lot going on, and then. The other areas are just like beautiful, natural, uh, like hiking and stuff. But uh, I would also say be careful. I mean, you have to, I don't think you should just go there without any sort of knowledge about it and just show up. Um, I think that it's definitely a place you want to research beforehand and maybe know someone or talk to some people beforehand. And um, yeah, because especially right now, it's not the safest. So So on that note, um, I want to quickly, before you wrap up, talk about Be a Better Traveler, which is your newsletter that's that comes out periodically yeah. right now. Tell us a little bit about that ethos, because I know you've you've been using that for a while now. Like, where did Be a Better Traveler come from, and what's the mission there? Yeah, so Be a Better Traveler, it originally started with um, Curiosity Magazine, which was an online magazine that I used to run, um, and hopefully we'll pick back up again soon. But uh, basically, it means being curious and just kind of like taking the time to learn. So being open-minded um, and, but also going the extra mile to kind of understand a place. So um, rather than just researching like sites to see or restaurants to eat at, doing a little bit of research on politics, social issues, like local customs, things like that. So I think, you know, if someone came to the U.S. and didn't know who our president was, it would be crazy. But people go all the time to other countries and don't know anything about their politics. And I think that's, kind of weird like um even you know somewhere like italy like one of the most touristy places ever uh people don't like people go there and they're like okay i know i need to see these sites and go eat this pizza and stuff but they don't know anything about the italian government and it's not that you necessarily need to know like everything about the italian government but i think it just kind of shows like some sort of courtesy to have a little bit of knowledge about the place that you're going beyond the tourist side um 
it also I think makes your trip better like you can talk to taxi drivers you can talk to bartenders you can just like be a little more knowledgeable and I think people appreciate it and then if you can talk about it or start conversations about those things you'll probably gain a lot more insight about the places than you would have otherwise um also certain like local customs and stuff obviously you know like what you should wear tipping um things like that but also uh yeah I don't know like in certain places just some things are considered rude that aren't otherwise or in other places and yeah just little things like that give us one quick example and then we'll let you go because I know you've got probably some stuff to do this evening yeah um example of of like like something that was rude that you might have done like you might have just walked in if you weren't prepared and, and done like this everyday thing and it would have offended somebody um, oh my gosh, that's such a good question. You're putting me on the spot because there are definitely so many things and now I'm blank, you know, what they might be. Um, but like in some places, uh, you know, like giving a thumbs up signal is considered rude. Like we as Americans like, okay, yeah, like sounds great. And like, if you don't speak the language, maybe you give a thumbs up, you know, but in some places it means like screw you or something. And so, um, things like that can be considered really rude. But in, in general, I think it's mostly about just doing research like going a little bit extra mile and also just being curious when you're in a place and like actually being willing to learn and also um thinking about how you're affecting the place like both environmentally and otherwise so like with over tourism this is really the issue and of course like we can't stop people from going places and you sh- i think that overall travel is really a good thing and people should go anywhere but it's kind of about like making the most of it minimizing your impact and just being a curious responsible traveler wherever you are Absolutely. Well, hey, Rebecca, thanks so much for coming on and thank you for sharing your insight. Uh, I don't know anyone else that would have such a unique perspective on Iraq. Uh, honestly, like when I started this podcast, if you'd have told me we'd be doing an Iraq episode, I would <laughs> I would have doubted that. So I'm so glad to learn a little bit more about the place. It's, it sounds amazing. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I hope that people get a chance to visit the the Get Lost Podcast is a production of the Sold Outside Exploration Company. Give us a follow on Apple News at Sold Outside or on Instagram at Get Lost Podcast. <laughs>